The work of mission centers on gospel proclamation. So how does mercy ministry figure into the picture? The standards of God apply to the spiritual realm and the physical realm equally. And therefore, gospel application, the gospel that redeems us for all eternity, uh, the gospel that sets men free, the gospel buys men back from the slave market of sin, is simultaneously the gospel that moves out into the world with grace and mercy and hope in the midst of a graceless, hopeless, merciless world. We'll discuss that with Dr. George Grant on today's show. But first, a word from ABWE President Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Welcome to Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications for ABWE International, joined again, as always, by my good friend and compatriot, Scott Dunford, lead church planter, Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. And if this show has been a blessing to you at all, uh, please share the show. Please remember to leave it a, a rating, positive review in your podcast platform of choice. And uh, you guys, everyone, we want to give a thank you to everyone who's been doing that lately, engaging us on social media. We've been trying to put more content out there and things are in the works. Uh, we are having conversations here. Scott, I had a conversation with two of our staff members here at the ABWE headquarters today about studios, about video, about all sorts of things that we've sort of been dreaming about for years. Scott, you and I have also been talking about releasing an exclusive series and there's some good stuff in the works for those of you who followed the missions podcast for some time. And so we're so grateful for all of you who've always loyally shared this content. And in fact, Scott, you just were sent the information of somebody who's interested in becoming a missionary because they found out about it through the show. Is that right? Yeah. And that kind of always surprises me. So um, thank you for, for listening. Thank you for getting involved. Um, encourage that this could be a blessing to someone. And hopefully we cast uh uh, some heat and some light, both. And uh, that's right. anyway, and hopefully a little bit more light than heat, like 51%, 49% kind of a ratio. Um, and, uh, and speaking of somebody who knows how to bring the light and the heat um, is Dr. George Grant. He's a pastor with a long resume based currently in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of things today. But where we began uh, today's episode was with the question of mercy ministry, you know, and in all the conversation about social issues and engaging our communities lately and how much controversy that's caused, I feel like mercy ministry as a calling of the local church gets lost in the conversations that pastors have in some of our spaces and particularly missionaries. So we as a show and as an organization believe that missions centers on gospel proclamation, disciple making, local church planting. We believe that's where it's at. That's God's plan A for the world. Um, and we can be really excited and center on that. But then our calling and our duties to our communities, 
uh, and the physical needs that they have, I think, are something that can fall by the wayside. And of course, there's a lot of people in evangelicaldom, uh, if you can call it that, who will talk about those things. But somebody who also talks a lot about those things with kind of a, a full-throated gospel appeal is Dr. George Grant. And, and George, we're just going to ask you, can you briefly kind of frame who you are in your ministry and, and kind of give us an overview so we know who we're talking to today? Sure. Well, I am a pastor, and I pastor in Franklin, Tennessee, a church that I have planted, and I'm a part of a church planting network that uh, our intention is to continue to plant churches because uh, we want to make sure that there are churches in every community that are uh, clearly proclaiming the gospel, that are accessible, uh, that are relational, and that are missional. And so uh, that's my primary work, but I've also been uh, involved in publishing through the years. I've started publishing companies. I've published uh, and written um, more than 80 books myself. And uh, so I've, I've got that kind of side of my ministry, the, the ministry of the printed word. I have been heavily involved in the pro-life movement uh, since 1972, uh, when I was a high schooler living in Dallas, uh, where the Roe v. Wade case originated mm. uh, with uh, District Attorney Henry Wade. Mm. And um, I have been involved in an outreach to the homeless and uh, to the poor uh, ever since I was a pastor in Houston, Texas. Uh, starting in 1978, we had an outreach to the homeless uh, in uh, our little community just on the north side of Houston. And I've been involved in overseas missions of pretty much my entire ministry life. I have uh, started schools in the Islamic world. When I was in college, I was fascinated by the, the rise of a new Middle East in the 1970s and foresaw a time when uh, the conflict between uh, Israel and its Arab neighbors uh, might escalate into a kind of global conflict. And so I just started thinking about what missions might look like uh, in the Middle East and developed a kind of missions strategy that I call the wedge strategy, which is to look for persecuted minorities within the majority Muslim cultures uh, and find ways to minister to them. So what we've done is we've started uh, classical Christian schools uh, in places like Iraq and Indonesia, uh, usually among minority peoples and the poor. Uh, and so, I've, you know, I've been involved in a whole lot of things. I've done radio broadcasting, television broadcasting. I was uh, the executive director of Coral Ridge Ministries under D. James Kennedy for a number of years and ran his radio and TV ministries, as well as served as the executive pastor of the, the church there. Uh, I, I actually went there as the minister of community development, which was basically a ministry to the poor and, and a ministry in the arena of uh, pro-life involvement. So I've done lots and lots of different things, 
But what's interesting is I've never seen them as different things. They're really all just one thing. It's the gospel. It's the gospel proclaimed and the gospel put into action. It's the gospel made manifest in the midst of a poor fallen world where the gospel meets actual physical needs uh, by mobilizing God's people to be the hands and feet of his mercy and justice, uh, while simultaneously uh, establishing the foundations for an eternal destiny in the presence of the Father. So it, all of those things that I have done seem to uh, outside observers sometimes to be uh, unrelated, mm. but for me, they're all just one thing. Yeah. Well, among those various things, you know, you've, you've written on, for instance, the issue of homelessness. You wrote The Dispossessed, uh, Homelessness in America many years ago. So a lot of your life's work has involved some of these things, overseas missions, uh, relief efforts, both in the U.S. and overseas. Uh, again, yeah, an outside observer might think those things are unrelated. So uh, the central thing that drives you in all those things is the gospel, right? So, so what what is your what is your central thesis? You know that surrounds that. How does the gospel lead to those things? Because so often we can think of the gospel reductionistically, right, as only a plan of personal salvation, right? You know, in uh, the prophecy of Micah. We have this uh, incredible kind of courtroom scene. It's a covenant lawsuit sequence where you have this bargaining back and forth between a guilty people and a sovereign uh, God. And the conclusion after, after attempting a series of plea bargains, the people finally uh, sort of relent and cry out to the Lord, what is it that you desire? And he simply declares through the prophet, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That, uh, that declaration, the famous declaration of Micah 6, 8, is actually picked up by Jesus later as he confronts the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, he he simply says, you know, you, 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 you tithe uh, your uh, mint and cumin, uh, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And then he actually quotes from Micah 6, 8. The, the, the whole passage is Christ simply declaring that the standards of God apply to the spiritual realm and the physical realm mm -hmm. equally. And therefore, gospel application, the gospel that redeems us for all eternity, uh, the gospel that sets men free, the gospel that uh, buys men back from the slave market of sin, is simultaneously the gospel that moves out into the world with grace and mercy and hope in the midst of a graceless, hopeless, merciless world. Uh, when we're able to make manifest the love of God uh, by uh, clinging to holiness and caring for the orphans and widows in their distress simultaneously, uh, we are applying uh, what Francis Schaeffer calls the final apologetic, the apologetic of love. 
So for me, all of these things really are just various means of grace, means of proclaiming the, the, the doctrines of grace to a hurting and desperate world. Uh, the founder of World Vision, uh, Stan Mooningham, uh, one time uh, said, hungry bellies have no ears for the gospel. Uh, by that, he meant simply that sometimes in order to gain a hearing, uh, you, 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 have to, you have to meet people's physical needs. We see this over and over again in Christ's ministry as he uh, heals and then proclaims. Uh, we, we see this over and over again in the Apostle Paul's ministry as well as he proclaims the gospel and gathers a people, he then mobilizes them to care for the needs of their brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. So it's all one thing. You know, I live out here in the Silicon Valley. Um, the juxtapositions are really stark. One, if you are poor and homeless, this might be the best place to live because the weather is pretty nice and there's a lot of fruit on every tree. Um, but you really see this huge disparity and, and people actually, you know, uh, it's pretty well documented. You know, you, you see multi-million dollar, uh, homes, which look like middle-class homes everywhere else in the country, but they're, they're very expensive homes. People that are making a lot of money working for Google and the tech companies. But then, you know, the median of my highway has got, you know, uh, several homeless people that have built a little encampment there. You know, you see this and then you, and, and then you see like the differences in the homeless, right? Where you have, you know, some that are just, they're working homeless. They're, they're working 60, 80 hours a week, but they can't afford enough for rent. But then you also have those, you know, out on the street who, you know, um, who are, you know, possibly mentally ill, or maybe they're involved with drug addiction. You have know, complicated situations all over. And sometimes it's been, you know, those of us in the Christian community, especially from the, the secular uh, world says, hey, you know, Christians, aren't involved in this. And I think maybe even especially with those uh, in reformed world, the criticism can be out there that, hey, um, all you guys care about is preaching the word and a heavy emphasis on preaching. And then where are these, these acts of mercy? So I'm, I'm asking you the question, one, do you think that's a true characterization of us um, that we aren't as, as worried about mercy as we ought to be. Um, but then, then secondly, if not, why do you think this per perception exists? Yeah, I th it's complicated. It's probably as complicated as the homeless uh, situation, because uh, we do live at a time when there is a lot of discussion among evangelicals about social justice, uh, critical race theory, all, all of, you know, the, the mishmash of of practical philosophies that are storming the gates of local churches. So there's a lot of talk about that. I have to say that it's though mostly talk, not a whole lot of action. And oftentimes it's unhelpful talk, critical race theory, for instance, um, you know, f focus on uh, a kind of social justice that is alien to uh, the call of biblical mercy. So I do think that there is justification for saying that, uh, by and large, evangelical churches, Reformed churches, are in a prosperous little bubbles, uh, and there is little engagement uh, with the world. In 1970, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book 
entitled The Church at the End of the 20th Century. It was an incredibly prophetic book. I've been rereading it because I've got a presentation I'm going to make on uh, that book and a little offshoot from that book called The Mark of the Christian, uh, which uh, focuses on the call of Christians to love, uh, particularly to love one another. Uh, Jesus makes plain in both John chapter 13 and John chapter 17, our, our call is to uh, to, to be one and to be one in love. Uh, but in this book, Schaefer makes the argument that uh, modernity is fast bringing on the church a, a, a conflict for which the church is not ready and not prepared and not capable of facing. And he starts to list all of the things that will soon come crashing down. This is 1970. He's starting to talk about race. He's starting to talk about human sexuality. He's starting to talk about uh, the fact, and this is prior to Roe v. Wade, uh, the fact that biology was going to change um, in, in accordance with Hindu uh, beliefs of non-gender um, binary structures. And I mean, it's just incredibly prescient. Well, one of the things that he says is that the only way that we can begin to prepare for the conflicts that will face us is if we engage with our communities substantively with biblical answers uh, to real and substantial questions in a fallen world. So, uh, you know, as long ago as 1970, Francis Schaeffer saw the mm. disconnect. Uh, he saw the disconnect between our words and our professions, uh, even our manifestos, uh, and our actual engagement mm. with the world. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that is uh, always frustrating to me are, are uh, Christians who are ready to say yay and amen to the call of mercy ministry, but relegated all to um, to one or two offerings a year on a, a particular Sunday. Uh, pro-life is basically one Sunday a year where we remind ourselves, oh, babies are precious and, uh, and let's give some money to the crisis pregnancy center. That kind of disengagement really does involve, invite the scorn of the world. In fact, one of the things that Schaefer says in the book is, that Jesus gives permission to the world to judge us based on whether or not our love is made manifest. And he says they can judge us on two things. First, whether or not we are actually Christians. They will know that you are Christians by your love. And secondly, whether or not the gospel is true, he says, uh, by your love, they will know that the Father has sent me. And so Jesus, you know, makes it plain. Schaefer <laughs> draws this out in kind of a thunderous way. This book written in 1970 is just as prophetic today as it was then, because I'm afraid we haven't heard his prophetic mm. warnings. Well, I'm used to hearing 
people in sort of the Christian culture building world of evangelical leaders, influencers, people like that quoting guys like Schaefer, right? Um, however, it seems like just like there's this disconnect between people that often emphasize preaching and doctrine and then real practical works of mercy and justice along with those things. I think there's another disjunction that that comes into play now and then. It's, it's And it's this sort of vein of let's build a very uh, Christian culture and let's let's evangelize the country, but then change the cultural foundations, you know, all the way from the local church pews to the halls of government. Um, and then over here on the periphery lives cross-cultural missions. And and those two things often don't go together. It's all, almost as though sometimes either you're going to be focused on pioneering to the ends of the earth or you want to reclaim the United States. I don't see as many people that have a vision for both of those things. And what I love about your ministry and your work is, is you, you mentioned it before we got on the air, uh, doing things like sending missionaries from your church to plant classical Christian schools in the Middle East, in Islamic contexts like Iraq, which is not something that I would ever think would be easy or possible, right? And so maybe you can talk about that. Uh, but what drove you in those efforts and what is it like for you to bridge those two worlds? How can pioneer missions go together with this idea of, of thinking Christianly about culture? Well, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. It's <laughs> the Bible. The, the Bible doesn't create that dichotomy. Uh, the Bible doesn't make that separation. Uh, we, we, we see in uh, the scriptures the call uh, to this full-orbed Christian life. And this full-orbed Christian life is not prioritized. We're not told, okay, now first get your family uh, completely in order, raise your teenagers, and then uh, maybe at some point in the future when you have uh, your financial nest egg uh, secure and everything is all right and your doctrine is uh, completely in order, uh, at that point then you can start to think about ministry. You, you don't see anything like that. Uh, in the scriptures, what you see is this full-orbed call. Uh, we, we are not, not supposed to be uh, creating churches that are really, really good at worship but not so good at all of the other things or really, really good at missions, but not so good at ecclesiology, or uh, churches that are really, really good in caring for the local community, but not caring at all about the larger world. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be building churches where individuals within the congregation, individual families, will have unique callings, but together we walk in the fullness of gospel calling. Um, we're to live out the fullness of the Great Commission, uh, which talks about the nations, and it talks about families. It talks about locality. It's uh, from here to the ends of the earth. So I, I don't see in the scriptures any kind of, of dividing line there. And so as opportunities arise, uh, over time, my, my default answer to people when they say, I think we ought to do this, is yes. Let's figure out how. Uh, let's uh, figure out when. Uh, let's uh, make sure that we do it safely and wisely. But yes, let's, let's do it. 
So how can churches that see the Great Commission is about seeing churches planted and established and reproducing? How how can churches bring in these ideas of of mercy and social welfare and and emphasis on seeing biblical justice played out in these in these avenues? How do those things come together in a in a fully orb church planting uh, strategy? Well, that's that's a great question. It's a question that I'm often asked. And I think that most people want uh, some sort of a programmed answer, uh, a checklist, perhaps. A little manual. A, a manual, a series of steps. The truth is, is that the gospel goes forth through relationships. Uh, gospel needs are, up, are, are, are met with the gospel supply as we look around us and see the world that we live in. So one of the things that I normally do when I'm asked that question is I say, well, so what needs are there in your community? Uh, what, 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 what's going on where you are? Is there a homeless encampment in the median of your local highway? Well, maybe if you drive past that every single day, maybe you need to start there. Or maybe it's the coffee shop that you go to every morning and you notice uh, that one of the baristas is uh, a, a recent immigrant from Pakistan, and uh, you notice that they're struggling uh, one day. They're not their normal happy self. Do you, do you engage them? Do you pray with them? Uh, maybe it's at a you know, a convenience store that, uh, that you uh, engage a single mom and you start talking to her and find out about needs and you just follow the footnote trail in a sense. Uh, you, uh, you, you track down needs right where you are. That's the place mm. to start. I, I think uh, missions overseas is uh, best when it's relational. It's not when a church says, you know, we need to put together a balanced portfolio. We need to have somebody in Latin America and somebody in uh, North Africa, somebody in South Africa, somebody in Asia. Let's put together this portfolio. No, get to know missionaries. Find them, bring them to your local church, uh, let them preach, let them teach, let them cast vision, and then get your pastor, as a part of his job description, the responsibility of once every three years actually visiting every single missionary on the field where they are mm. so that they can know exactly what's going on in the, the fields in which the congregation is investing. I mean, it's just simple stuff. It's relationships. It is. And I, I love that idea. I also love something you said earlier, which is that churches don't have the luxury of saying, we're going to only do this and not this, right? We're, we're going to be the evangelizing church, but not the discipling and training and teaching church, for instance. Well, we, we don't have the choice to do that, right? The Great Commission puts forward that we are to teach disciples to obey all that our Lord has commanded. And I want to think about how that plays out in some of these particular areas uh, of compassion to our communities. And where I first was exposed to your work, uh, George, was actually through your life work. 
um, and through the uh, the Babies Are Murdered Here uh, documentaries. And so I'd like to ask you just a question about how this plays out on the life issue. And we'll do that in just a moment after this quick break with Dr. George Grant. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. And this June, attend the National Conference. Go to abuseprevention.org and register with ABWE21 as the promo code to receive 20% off your ticket. That's promo code ABWE21 to receive 20% off. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached and there are other peoples still more hidden, and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached, and they take more cross-cultural effort. Is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture, and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there, so that there can be a long years and even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org. We're back with Dr. George Grant. And Dr. Grant, you have focused on abortion-related ministry in the U.S. and preaching the gospel into these contexts. That's how I first heard about you. So what does our audience need to know about engaging the life issue with the uh, with with the gospel uh, specifically, whether it's in the U.S. or overseas? So uh, this is one area of need where, you know, very few of us have have the luxury of saying, oh, it's not happening here. No, it's happening everywhere. So how does the gospel come to bear on that issue? Well, first thing that we have to do is we have to remember that the gospel is the proclamation of life into a world gripped by death. That, that is the great beauty of the gospel. Jesus is the Prince of Life who came with the words of life. Uh, he uh, brought for us the water of life and the bread of life. So w- one of the things that we have to do is we, we have to be clear that this is not an issue. It simply is the practical application of the gospel to a broken and fallen world, gripped by sin and death. Uh, so th- that's the first thing. And, and then secondly, if, if we look back at the whole history of the church, the whole history of the church, long before there was ever a planned parenthood, 
the, the question of the Church of Jesus Christ confronting the death-dealing uh, forces of the world is at the center of every great missions movement, uh, whether it's uh, Amy Carmichael uh, or uh, J. Hudson Taylor or going back further, uh, Jan Cominius or Cyril and Methodius, or all the way to Basil of Caesarea and Gregory Nazianzus, over and over and over again, it's the voice of hope and light and life in the midst of a world gripped by tyranny, injustice, and death. So when we understand that, when we proclaim that, inevitably we're going to be driven to those places where death-dealing is at its most uh, brutal and noxious uh, form. And that, that, that's, in our day, uh, oftentimes uh, in the arena of abortion. I have found that some of the most fruitful evangelistic work uh, comes uh, as, uh, as uh, moms with two extra hours to spare on Tuesday afternoons sit and do counseling in crisis pregnancy mm -hmm. centers. I have found extraordinary opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel simply by standing outside a Planned Parenthood killing center and praying that the Lord would send me mm. the right people. Uh, those, are, those are evangelistic opportunities where we can simply say, uh, there, is, there is a light of life that is shining in the world by the power of the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we start to see the life issue in that way, rather than a political issue or a medical issue or a cultural issue, when we see it as a gospel calling, it's, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult for even wild horses to drag us away from the front lines of this battle. You know, certainly, you know, I mean, with ABWE, we, we've, we've even interviewed here the work in crisis pregnancy centers around the world that missionaries are doing. And they're seeing the same thing you're describing there, a lot of opportunities for evangelism, because you're really hitting people at a, at a time when their lives are in chaos. And oftentimes they're coming to these centers mm -hmm. um, with no options, at least that they can foresee. And they, all they've heard is, hey, here's the simple option, which we know is not simple long term. Um, but there's also a lot of other, but anytime we're involved in this kind of ministry, it's super messy because people's lives are messy. Um, you know, whether that's right. dealing with foster care on the other side of it, or even adoption, we, 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 we know, we know that when Christians engage in this, these, it's, it's extremely fruitful, but it also isn't like rosy. Um, what are the other areas that you're seeing Christians engaging in, or that you would love to see the church engaged in? Um, but it's going to require, you know, some fortitude and some some determination. It's not just as simple as as uh, as going into a ballot box and voting against abortion, for instance. Um, what what are your thoughts about what are the other areas that you're hoping and wanting to see Christians engage in? Well, one of those is the area of human sexuality. Uh, we have a lot of confusion in our day about what is right and good and true for human flourishing. Uh, the gospel has great answers for this, uh, not merely prohibitions against illicit 
uh, behaviors, uh, but there is a richness and a wholeness. Um, you know, as Paul is, is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, the beauty of marriage and singleness and calling and appointment in circumstances, uh, one of the things that, that he says is that, that uh, God's design is for our happiness. He actually uses the word happiness. I, I don't think that Christians do a very good job in the area of human sexuality. We are in torment as we see uh, what was once considered uh, abnormalities uh, in human behavior uh, now becoming a kind of new orthodoxy, uh, untouchable orthodoxy, and, uh, and, and Christians cower in mm. fear uh, lest cancel culture somehow, you know, uh, come close to their door. But I, I think courage in the area of of human flourishing is uh, is an area that I would love to see Christians engaged mm. in. Uh, you know, there there are a handful of ministries out there that are doing remarkable, remarkable work in helping people recover uh, from uh, lifelong addictions to various sin tendencies, and we need to be engaged in that wherever. The battle rages in a culture. That's where we need to bring the clarion cry of the gospel. Another area that I think uh, is uh, really critical for this day and time is uh, is the uh, the area of of Christian stewardship. Uh, we have a lot of teaching uh, in spots about Christian giving. Uh, but rarely is it a full-orbed Christian worldview application. It, it tends to be uh, g- get out of debt, make sure you tithe. And that, that's, that's <laughs> We won't it. name names, but yes, that's uh, but, pretty much the message. <laughs> and you know what? I, I am a strong advocate of get out of debt and tithe. But Christian stewardship involves the whole yeah. of life, all of time, every gift, every resource that the Lord entrusts to us. And so uh, I think that one of the, the, the areas of reformation for the church in the days ahead uh, has to be the area of, of stewardship. It's stewardship that uh, and the stewardship issue that got William Carey onto the mission mm-hmm. field. It was stewardship uh, that got Lottie Moon onto the mission field. It was stewardship uh, that was a spur in J. Hudson Taylor's life. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, this this vision of I've got all of these things. I know all of this stuff. Lord, what should I do with it? Mm. Mm. So there are a lot of areas in the modern world where uh, courage, tenacity, discipline, and calling need to be applied where we're not real consistent right now. And sometimes when we're speaking to people interested in becoming missionaries, we talk about this 747 principle. In other words, you don't become an effective missionary in midair right, on your way to the field. Uh, I think we can apply a similar way of thinking to these acts of compassion that need to begin to mark our churches more. 
Amen. If we're not thinking this way, not just proclaiming the gospel and being evangelistic, but if we're not thinking holistically about our communities, we're not going to suddenly start doing that when we're on the mission field. Again, we've got to be practicing these things from now. Now, you already hit at this a little bit, but I, I, I did just want to clarify, you know, the, we throw around two terms and maybe they are interchangeable or synonymous, or maybe they're not, but we throw around words like mercy, mercy ministry, and then words like justice. And of course, we've seen that used in the context of social justice, uh, or we could just say justice more biblically or broadly speaking. Is it helpful to distinguish but mercy and and justice are there are those different things and maybe there's pitfalls with those things as well but also a positive vision of those things and you know, other words like compassion you know uh, benevolence right that don't always sneak into our vocabulary as much as justification or glorification you know the election sure. those sorts of things that that we really do see sure. written in scripture with an iron pen sort of a thing yeah well, justice and mercy are different things, uh, but they're never separate things. And, and that's a distinction that we need to really clearly make. Uh, all, all through the scriptures, we see that, uh, that justice is learning where to draw lines. Uh, it, it, in fact, it, uh, the, the Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament literally means uh, to draw a clear line. Uh, it's uh, it's to recognize the antithesis between good and evil, between light and dark, between uh, life and death, it, and to uh, to call upon the Lord's standards for the enforcement of drawing that line. Mercy, uh, on the other hand, uh, is um, is in the Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament is. Uh, is a, a word that that includes all of those other things that you were talking about: loving kindness, uh, compassion. Uh, it's the Hebrew word chesed, and it's a word that um, that includes the everlasting love of God and the manifested particular love of uh, moment by moment care. And one of the things that uh, that we see in the scriptures is that. Justice and mercy always go together. They're not opposed to one another. They, they are coordinated aspects of the character of God. Uh, we see it all through the Psalms, where uh, it's particularly in the first book of the Psalms, um, you know, start, starting with uh, uh, Psalm 6, 7, 8, and, and beyond, uh, we start to see this call, Lord, come and judge with your great compassion and your everlasting mm. love. So one of the things that we've got to do is we've, we've got to stop opposing uh, justice and mercy. Uh, we've got to uh, make sure that mercy is not so soft and that justice is not so harsh as to uh, exclude one another. Uh, we need to uh, see the, the great embrace uh, where the righteousness and justice of our God uh, flow forth to the ends of the earth like a never-ending stream, and that's uh, that, that that's not an easy thing to do because we like to have a nice, clean, separate categories. Uh, but uh, real justice uh, will always have uh, as a part of it an element of mercy, 
That's why, you know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians thunders uh, against a man in uh, illicit uh, uh, wickedness. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians, he says to the church, he's, he's repented, forgive him, uh, bring him back into the fold. Mm. Uh, justice and mercy simultaneously. I, I love that. Real quick, and Scott, I want to let you ask our closing question, but uh, my son is reading through Deuteronomy right now, and he's eight. And so sometimes it's not immediately uh, understandable to him, and we have to have conversations in the evening about that. And last night, he's reading the chapter on warfare, and he's asking me, Dad, what are terms of surrender? You know, and explaining, um, on the one hand, there is justice, right? And Sometimes there has to be the shedding of blood, sometimes for God's people under the old covenant. And now there's times when war has to happen. Uh, And yet look at God's mercy and kindness that he requires them to give the opposing side a way out. Hey, you know, drop your arms right now and, and, and we'll call this thing quits, even in something as harsh and severe as warfare and warfare in the Old Testament, which is characterized as bloodthirsty, right? The, The characterizations, the mischaracterizations of that that exist. And yet there's a merciful component built into that. And God's people relate to, na- to the nations. And so, I, you know, it's playing out even in my son's um, devotions. And then after we are done reading that, we immediately go to prayer. Right, Scott? <laughs> that was your segue. That was my segue. <laughs> you know, certainly as we think about these things, you know, the work of the spirit has to be evident. And I appreciate, the, you know, the way you've articulated, articulated that, you know, we see the, the way that Christ deals with us in in justice and mercy um and and you've emphasized the work of prayer in that in that ministry so could you talk a, talk a little bit about that hey we're we're people especially if there's missionaries listening these are the activists of the christians we rush to action we want to be busy doing and it's probably as americans we're even more uh prone to to you know, to act before we've really thought and uh, prayed through it. So can you give us some encouragements about how prayer uh, should shape our ministry, particularly as we're engaging in doing? Yeah, one of the most um, effective doers in the Old Testament was Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. He was was called— uh, by this uh, compulsion from the Lord uh, to restore the dignity of the city of Jerusalem by rebuilding the walls. The thing that I love about Nehemiah is uh, he, he was quite the leader. He understood how to motivate people. He understood how to uh, procure resources. He understood how to divide up tasks. He was a good delegator. He was, um, he was unrelenting in his moral tenacity. He loved the word of God. He called the people to worship. He met obstacles and uh, opposition with uh, fervor. But the thing that I love about him is that every time he does anything, he stops first to pray. Before he formulates his plan, he prays. Before he goes before the king, he prays. Uh, As he's uh, circling the walls, he's praying. As he mobilizes the people, he prays. At every turn, he prays. That's such a perfect model for us. If, uh, if, If the Lord 
is not in our work. We do all of our work in vain. Uh, Even good gospel work is vain if the Spirit of God is not upon us. And so uh, we know our proclivity. Some of us are workaholics. Some of us love our checklists and our, our resumes and our accomplishments. And if that's all we're doing, then, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, about uh, those who deny the resurrection, we are among all men most to be pitied. Mm. Uh, we, we, we need to be people who seek the face of God, who seek the outpouring of His Spirit, who are uh, persistent in prayer. We ought to uh, be pioneering new ways to uh, catalog Uh, the answers that God has made to our supplications and intercessions. We need to uh, be piling up our prayer notebooks, and those need to be the legacies that we leave behind uh, to our children and to our grandchildren, not just institutional monuments. Mm. Ouch. I'm thinking right now of how many lists of prayer requests that I have going, and I don't have any lists of prayer answers uh, going right now. Maybe that's something I should consider. Dr. Grant, thank you for uh, those words of exhortation. How can people learn more from you and follow your work? Well, I'm uh, in a lot of different places, all (laughs) over social media, all the the normal spots. I I have a website, georgegrant.net, where people can find my books and uh, blogs and podcasts and radio stuff. So, um, you know, the, the, the key thing that I would like to, to, to leave folks with is uh, simply to, uh, to hear the call of the gospel to the whole of life, to bring the good news of Jesus to every arena, every dilemma, every conflict, uh, because that is what our calling is for this day and time. Mm. I love those words. And it would be an absolute pity if we spent all of our time arguing about things like social justice on social media and didn't actually get out and engage in acts of mercy and love and justice in our towns and across cultures, too. And I do want to pick your brain sometime about what it was like to plant classical schools in the Middle East. We'll talk about that some other time. In the meantime, if you have any questions for us, or topic suggestions, email alex at missionspodcast.com. And before you leave, remember to rate, subscribe, and review. That helps us get this content in front of others. Until next week, thanks for listening.